0: From spring break. Uh, glad for you to be here tonight. My name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister here. And uh, so we've been going through this series of Revelation, but tonight we're actually going to do a one-off and uh, we're going to dive back into Revelation next week. But tonight I want to talk about something that I feel like is near and dear, not just to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and follow Jesus, but also I think if you're, especially if this is your first time or like relatively first time to RUF, I think this is something that um if I were to kind of reduce or try to say one thing that RF is about tonight is one of those things that I would love to talk about. And what we're looking at is just one beatitude out of the Sermon on the Mount, and, um from Matthew five, uh, verse three. And I'll read it for us. Uh Jesus simply as he's gathered the crowds and he's teaching basically what the Sermon on the Mount is, is he's essentially telling us, showing us, um, Really, um, giving us a vision of what it, what life in his kingdom looks like, and if you're familiar with the beatitudes, this is, I think, one of the most um, compelling and yet strange and maybe paradoxical beatitudes. And it's simply this: Matthew five three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to pray for us, and then really all I want to do tonight is unpack what in the world does it mean to be poor in spirit. So let's pray first. <clears throat> Lord Christ, we thank you that you're, um, we have your words preserved for us in Scripture, and you, we don't have to guess what you're like. We don't have to guess what it is that um, following you means or looks like that, Lord, you have um, told us in your word. And I pray, Lord, as we look at this particular beatitude tonight— that you would teach us, that you would come and be our teacher. Uh, We cannot teach ourselves. Uh, Lord, in our most sober moments, we know that we are not wise, we are foolish, we are not smart, we um, we need instruction. So, Lord, would you come and teach us? And, Lord, we confess, too, when we think about what it is that you ask of us, what it is that you're creating in us by your Spirit, Lord, we know if in our most sober, sane moments that we cannot do it in and of ourselves. We plead and long for your spirit, and Lord, we confess that we have failed. We have fallen short, and we need you to meet us in your grace and in your mercy and your kindness. And Lord, maybe especially as we come back from spring break, that hits close to home for us. And Lord, would you remind us of what it is that you are like that you really are the only God that we have ever heard of that loves and befriends and meets us sinners uh, where we are, not where we've been pretending to be, not even where we want to be, but, Lord, where we are in our weakness, in our failure, in our flaws, and in our sins. So, Lord, would you come? Would you give us your spirit without measure? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you pour your grace out on us, and would you change us? And we pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. So I'm not sure if you followed... I think something really fascinating happened in basketball, especially in the NBA in the last... I think it happened March 8th, where um, Kevin Love, who uh, plays for, you know, Cavs player, but he had, I don't know if you followed it up, really a moment, I think it was in maybe January or February, we had to leave the court mid-game, and it was a moment where the Cavs uh, teammates kind of questioned him, like, is he quitting on the team? And it was this kind of weird moment that no one knew what to do with. Well, then March 8th, through the Players' Tribune... He wrote this beautiful, open kind of letter about what happened. And essentially in it, he confesses that he has for his whole really life struggled really deeply with anxiety and that basically he explains what happened in the court, uh, I think it was at a Hawks game, was a crippling panic attack. And he, as he starts to unpack like why he's waited so long to talk about his anxiety, he says this, it's on the screen. He said this, I thought it was pretty poignant, about why is it so hard for us to be vulnerable? Like, why is it so hard for us to talk about the things that are killing us sometimes? Why is it so hard for us to talk about the things that we most desperately need to talk about? And here's what he writes. He says this. He says, growing up, you figure out really quickly how a boy is supposed to act. You could could throw a girl in there, too. You learn what it takes to be a man. It's like a playbook. Be strong. Don't talk about your feelings. Get through it on your own. So for 29 years of my life, I followed that playbook. These values about men and toughness are so ordinary that they're everywhere and invisible at the same time, surrounding us like air or water. So for 29 years, I thought about mental health as someone else's problem. Sure, I knew on some level that some people benefited from asking for help or opening up. I just never thought it was for me. To me, it was a form of weakness that could derail my success in sports or make me seem weird or different. And when I read that, I kind of thought he's nailing something that is true about our culture, and that is true about us. That there is that when it comes to talking about the things that we most desperately need to talk about, we have a really, really hard time. That you and I kind of naturally put on a front with each other. That you and I pretend like everything is fine. That you and I pretend like we are strong and we are afraid of admitting weakness. That you and I pretend like we're cool. And that nothing is messy or wrong in our lives. And that you and I just naturally, we just kind of breathe it in the air of our, our, not just our culture, but of our humanity. We just want to pretend like everything is going great and is okay. And we're deeply, deeply afraid of letting anyone see through the cracks that might be happening in our lives or in our stories. And then we get to this beatitude. And Jesus is saying something that is so counter that. He is saying something that is so opposite of that that he is saying part of what it means to belong to him is to be vulnerable with your weakness. That part of what it means to belong to him is to be real about the messiness that is your life and your struggles. That part of what it means to belong to him is to be poor, not rich in spirit, poor in spirit, (coughs) admitting your need, admitting your weakness. And Jesus actually boils it down. He says, if if you're not poor in spirit, this is why we have to wrestle with this tonight. If you're not poor in spirit, Jesus is saying conversely, you have no part in me. If you are not able to, to readily confess your weakness, to talk about your struggles, to get real about the mess that is your life, even if it's just all inward, then you have no part in this kingdom and you do not belong to him. It's kind of the converse of what he's saying. So we have to wrestle with what does he mean? So what I want to look at tonight is really simple. I just want to look at what does he mean to be, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Like, what does he mean when he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit? And I think all I want to look at tonight is really three things that it means And I think the first uh, thing that it means is it has everything to do with humility. Let's do a little bit of context work first. So here Jesus says he's teaching on the kingdom, and he's telling his people this is what life with me looks like. And he comes to this one, and I think it's interesting uh, to kind of wrestle with what that would have sounded like if you were in that crowd. And I think for us it, it hits us strangely because... There's a a way in which we can mistakenly take it as, oh, Jesus is saying it's cool to be self deprecating, or it's cool to kind of like poor mouth yourself all the time, or it's cool to do what we could simply call false humility, and that's not what he means. I think Sinclair Ferguson nails uh, the idea of exactly what he's trying to say that it means to be poor in spirit as we kind of dive into this. Here's what he says He says, Jesus is describing the person who sees his spiritual bondage, is conscious of the debt of his sins, and knows that in himself, He is dispossessed before God. All he can do is cry for mercy and depend upon the Lord. No one can be a Christian without this spirit. Everyone who is a Christian has this spirit. It is the spirit of the prodigal son. He left his father proudly, self-assured, in his share of the inheritance. But when he was bankrupt, right, when the money ran out, when the fun came to an end, when things started going poorly, he came to his senses. And this is what it means to be poor in spirit. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. So first, part of what that means is humility. That admitting and seeing your need. So part of what it means to be poor in spirit is to be spiritually humbled. That you are not all that you maybe want to be. That you are not all that you've maybe been pretending to be. That you are not all that you maybe want people to think you're cracked up to be. That humility is that first wave of what it means to be poor in spirit. And here's what the hard part of that is, is I think when you get to college, there's a way in which you see friends really, like, learn that the hard way. Like, I know in my experience coming freshman year, you have, we have those friends, and maybe that's your story, where you really make some horrifically bad outward decisions, right? Where it's like, you really, maybe you've kind of lived the good youth group life in, in high school, and then you get to college, and you kind of learn very quickly that it wasn't love for Jesus that was driving you, but it was love for approval, it was love for being cool, it was love for being accepted, and you make some really, really bad choices. And I know for some of you, maybe that's your story. And, and, and that maybe that was how freshman, sophomore, junior, maybe that's what senior year is like right now for you. But I think there's also another side of it that gets tricky, where it's hard to be humble, because we haven't maybe made those bad outward decisions. That we still have maybe followed, so to speak, the straight and narrow. You're here at RUF. Your parents want you to be here. You're like maybe begrudgingly here, but you're here. And you're kind of, as best you can tell, following what you think Jesus wants for your life as a college student. And that's beautiful and good and true. But the trick of that sometimes is it means you don't have a category for when we talk about this idea of being poor in spirit. Because if you were being honest, when you're looking at the cross, you don't exactly know why Jesus had to die for you. Like, it makes sense. If, if, you made some, if you've made some horrific decisions, it kind of makes sense. You're seeking his forgiveness. You're desperate. You're, like, longing to understand that that's what he did on the cross. But what if your thing is pride? Like, what if your thing is just being a judgmental Pharisee all the time? And the problem with that is you often don't even feel that or see that. And we often don't talk about that as just as deadly, as just as worthy of hell. And this is where we need this humility, um, I, I love the way that, if that's you, if that's your story, where your struggle has always been more inward than it's been outward. It's not been like going crazy, but it's been more that sort of ju- judging your roommate super hard. It's been more that kind of quietly thinking you're better than everyone because you haven't made those choices. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, he's an old Puritan, he used to say like this. He said, even if that is you, here's what, here's the, here's what humility looks like is you recognize about yourself that in your heart, even if you haven't made some of those choices, that in your heart, he said, in my heart is the seed of every sin. And what he meant by that was I am perfectly capable. Give me the right circumstances. Give me the right opportunities. Give me even a different personality. And I am so there, so easily. And I think there's a a tension here too between sometimes there's a false humility that I think that permeates us. Like, a false humility that kind of says, like, uh, look at how humble I'm being right now. Um, I think about this when I, I'm at my most awkward when someone's trying to give me a compliment. Like, I think about when you're driving, and you know that awkward moment when a, like you come up on a squirrel, and it has that moment where it kind of, like, freezes, and it can't figure out where to go. Like, that's how I feel when someone gives me a compliment, like that squirrel in the street. And part of it is because when someone is complimenting me, part of my face is saying, stop, like listen, I'm really not that great. And then the other side of my face is saying, please, I am that great. Please keep praising me. Please keep telling me how great I am. And we can live in this kind of false humility where we know we're supposed to be humble, but in reality, humility is still far from us. And I think, so what is true humility? Well, I think true humility comes by the gospel that says, actually, I am far worse than you know me to be. Like, if you really could get inside my heart and my mind for a second, you would be horrified. And at the same time, I am deeply loved and cherished and delighted in by God. And both of those things are true at the same time. He doesn't love me because I have it all together. In fact, he loves me in spite of my deepest flaws and deepest, most persistent struggles. And yet his love for me is real. And his love is working in me. Beautiful things that are of him. And so if he, true humility says, do not it's not really, like truly. We can truly say, like, this isn't about me. This is about Jesus. This is about the gospel. This is about the beautiful things that the gospel begins to produce in us. Uh, I love uh, Charles Spurgeon. You've probably heard me. If you've been on RF long enough, you've heard this story before. But Spurgeon had this moment where he, you know, famous preacher in London in the 1800s and just really like crowds came to hear him. And there's this one Sunday where he finished the sermon and he goes outside and there's this old lady in his church who's just decided she can't stand him and she's going to like tell him about how much she can't stand him. And so she walks up to him, it's on the screen, and, she's, and she sharply says, Mr. Spurgeon, you are the most arrogant, obnoxious, annoying man that I have ever heard of. And I wanted to be the one to tell you so. And, like, the crowd, the story goes, kind of, like, was shocked as everyone's kind of gathered around. You know how it goes when you're like, are walking out of church, and there's, everyone's kind of there. And the story goes that Spurgeon looked at one of his elders and just basically said, she doesn't even know the half of it. Humility. Poor in spirit. If you knew me, the real me, you would shudder. And yet, at the same time, because I'm so loved by Jesus, I can say that. I can own that. I can admit that. Uh, here's the way we could say it. Blessed are the poor in spirit who know that they are worse than anyone could possibly imagine, and yet at the same time equally know that that's precisely why Jesus came for you, and that you are more loved and cherished than you could dare dream. So that's the first question. Are you poor in spirit? How do you know? Do you know that you're worse than anyone could possibly imagine? Are you able to kind of say that about yourself? That if you knew the half of it, you would shudder at what I am. Do you know that? That is being poor in spirit. So first, humility. But then second, this one gets a little bit weird, but I think it's really important. And I think these all go together, by the way. That to be poor in spirit, the starting place is humility, which is a sense, a sense of your need. We sing sometimes, come you sinners, we sing it a lot. I love it because one of those lines is, all the fitness he requires is to what? is to feel your need of him. Humility is the starting place where you really begin to sense your sinfulness and at the same time sense his love for you. That if you're not sinful, Jesus really didn't have to go to the cross for you. But if you really are as bad as the cross says you are, there was no other way. Jesus had to die for you. And that when you begin humbly to admit that and sense that, then it leads secondly to gratitude. This is the second thing that being poor in spirit means. It sounds a little strange, but let's talk about it for a second. So when you're really in touch with your poverty, like soul poverty, spirit poverty, it means that everything in your life, God's grace especially, but even really everything from the blessings of your friendships to the blessings of your material life to the blessings of being a student at USC to even the blessings of your trials are a gift. It is pure gift to you. You have done nothing to deserve it. You have done nothing to earn it. And it comes into your life purely as a gift. I think this is why Ferguson brought up the whole idea of the younger brother. That when he's trying to describe what it means to be poor in spirit. Because imagine that story. It's Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. It really is the story of two sons, the younger brother, the older brother. It's a story all about grace and the wildness of God's grace. But if you remember that story, the younger brother, he tells himself, he senses, he says, I am going home to my father and my plea is going to be, I don't deserve anything from you. But my life is so miserable, my life is so bad, that would you please, in your kindness, just hire me like one of your servants? Like, that's what he's expecting. He's going in with low-ball expectations. Like, maybe if I go to my dad, he's going to be so mad at me. He's going to be so furious with me. But maybe just because I belong, I mean, you know, I'm his son, that maybe he'll consider giving me the lowest possible place in his house. And then if you know the story, the father does immeasurably more than that. I mean, the story is he runs to him, he embraces him, he kisses him, he literally gives him all the best stuff that he has, including the the coolest, best party that's ever been thrown. And can you imagine, just put yourself in the shoes of the younger brother for a second, what would you have felt? You would have felt you would have been stunned by the kindness and the extravagance of the father. And part of what it means to be poor in spirit is that you are stunned. You are stopped dead in your tracks at the grace and kindness of God in your life. That you are amazed that God could love somebody like you. That you are amazed and stunned that God could be so beautiful and glorious and gracious to you in the face of who you are and what you've done. This is where I think we begin to really struggle with, I love the way Tim Keller says it, that basically we're not poor in spirit. We're more, we want to be, and we're more upper middle class in spirit, where we kind of think like, no, like I kind of deserve these things. Yeah, like, of course God loves me. We're like, yeah, of course he should do some cool things in my life. Or of course he should give me that husband or that wife. Of course he should give me this job that I want. Of course he should come through for me, especially if I'm like following him reasonably well. If I'm like avoiding the wrong things and I'm like kind of doing the right things, Of course. And so we're very, very, very upper middle class in spirit. And then if we live that way, as we live that way, nothing is a gift, right? Like you can never be thankful about anything. Like gratitude, if that is your spirit, gratitude does not come easy to you. In fact, you feel entitled. You feel entitled to the things that you want God to do for you. You feel entitled to forgiveness. You feel entitled to God making your life go pretty well. You feel entitled to God maybe serving your hopes and dreams? You feel entitled. Me too. And Jesus is saying, no, life in my kingdom can't be that. I don't exist to kind of prop up your upper middle, upper middle class dreams. I am here to bring you down. Oh, let me say that. I'm here to bring you low. Then you might see your need for me. I'm, I'm here to bring you, to, to crush your hopes and dreams, not because I, but because I want you to see that your hopes and dreams are in me. And I've got better hopes and dreams for you than you could even possibly dream or imagine. Um, there's a story out of R.A. Torrey's life. He was an uh, uh, English preacher, and he was preaching in Australia in the 1900s. And he was about to go up to preach this sermon, kind of in a revival setting. And this anonymous note was slipped to him. And here's what the note said. It said, Dear Dr. Torrey, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something that I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian church for 30 years, and I have tried to be a consistent one all the time. I have been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years and an elder in the church for 20 years. And yet God does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? And so Tori received this note as he goes up to preach, and he decides, like, in one of those spirit-driven moments, he's going to try his best to answer. And here's what he says. He says, this man thinks that because he has been a consistent church minister for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, and an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. And then he says this, but he is really praying in his own name. And he says, basically, <laughs> we can't, we have no claims on God. That we're invited through Jesus to pray in Jesus' name because Jesus has all the claims on God. And anything that comes into our life is through pure gift, through what Jesus has won for us. But here's the thing. Like, if we live as upper middle class in spirit, and we live entitled, then of course when we talk about grace, we're not stunned. Of course when we talk about the cross, we're like, hmm, cool. Like, we, we lose the amazingness of grace. Um, There's an old illustration from a guy that I love. He kind of says like this. He says, imagine this. Imagine I told you tonight after RUF. Imagine I pulled you aside as you're leaving. I said, hey, just want you to know I took care of that bill for you. And you would be like, okay, cool. And, And your response to me saying, hey, I took care of that bill for you would depend totally on what bill I'm talking about, right? So let's say like, hey, I took care of that bill for you. And you're like, oh, what bill? Like I took care of your Netflix for this month. You're like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's pretty sweet of you, Sammy. Like, nice, that's a nice gesture. But what if I was like, hey, I actually took care of your entire uh, four years of tuition. Your response would be like, for some of you, you'd be like, like, maybe you would like bow. I don't, like, I don't know what do. <laughs> like, you would do. It would be more than, like, cool. Uh, and and M- Martin Lloyd-Jones is the guy that uses this illustration. He goes on to say, Jesus in Luke seven forty-seven. Remember the story where the woman, the sinful woman, the, the prostitute, they're at the house party, and the woman, as soon as she sees Jesus, she brings the perfume, like her life savings perfume, and she anoints his feet with it. You remember the story? Of the Pharisee, who's hosting the party, is like, "This is weird. Like, what is this crazy woman doing?" And Jesus, being Jesus, is like, "I know your thoughts. Let me confront you." And he says, essentially, it's Luke seven forty-seven. I'm just read it. He says, "Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." for she loved much. And then he says this stinging line, but he who is forgiven little, he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. He or she who is forgiven little, loves little. Ah, uh, there's this. Melissa and I are, are uh, making our way back through Parks and Rec, and I just forget how good it's just so good. Like from the beginning, it is so good. And so, second episode, canvassing. It's the ta- the first town hall meeting that is a total disaster, where they're trying to pitch this idea of the t- the park to the town, and it just goes so so badly. It's the one where <laughs> where Leslie says, "What I hear when I'm being yelled at is people carrying at me loudly," which is this beautiful line. But then the end, the end of that episode, if you remember this, the town hall guys, he's walking out (laughs) and says, hey, park lady, you suck. And then Leslie immediately turns to the camera and she smiles and she says, hear that? He called me park lady. And it's like that moment where I'm like, I need more of that in my life, right? Where I can receive the hurtful criticism with a smile on my face. But I'm sorry, I haven't quite made it through puberty yet. Uh, (laughs) Working on it, working on it. Uh. But I love, here's what I love. Like, I think there's a part of that that embodies that gratitude that we're talking about that means being poor in spirit, right? Where you you can see when you have been forgiven much, you can be stunned at the kindness of God to you. When you think you've been forgiven little, you feel so upper middle class in spirit and you're never going to be stunned and you're never going to get the grace of the gospel. And you're never going to be able to say, you call me park lady. It's not what we say. That'd be weird. But we say, no matter what's happening in my life, no matter what's coming at me, I belong to Jesus. I belong to the, in Revelation, I belong to the ruler of all rulers. And I have his heart. And if I have his heart, what can man do to me? If I have his eternal forever love, what can touch me? And we get unshakable in our gratitude. It's part of what it means to be poor in spirit. So we can say it like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit who love much with much gratitude because they have been forgiven so much. And here's the question for you. Do you love much because you've been forgiven much? Or do you love little because you think, "Mm, I don't need Jesus' forgiveness. I don't need the cross. And you feel like you've been forgiven very little. Blessed are the poor in spirit who have been forgiven much and therefore are free to love with, love much with much gratitude. And here's the last one I want you to see. So first, humility. Second, gratitude. And the last one is simply vulnerability. Um, being poor in spirit, that's the way I want to say it, isn't about just sensing your poverty. It's also about sharing your poverty. This is life in the kingdom of Jesus. Is we don't, we have to first sense it. Like, we can't fake this. Like, fake vulnerability is the worst thing in the world because all it is is just approval with a different spin. It's the worst thing in the world. But true, real vulnerability comes from you've been humbled, but because of God's grace, you're grateful. And then you can begin to share your story. And then you can begin to share the places where God has met you and the mess that is your heart and your life. And it leads to sharing. Sensing your poverty leads to sharing your poverty. Deeply feeling your your spiritual poverty leads to naturally beginning to share that. Sharing your weakness, sharing your struggles, sharing your sin. Um, that's what I love the way John A. he's a guy that I like a lot of his stuff, and he, he calls this the gift of going second. When you begin to be vulnerable about how God's grace has stunned you and stopped you in your tracks in the face of your sinfulness you begin to do what he calls the gift of going second. And what he means by that is is, it really is when you, with a friend, get super vulnerable about something that is on your heart and mind, something you're struggling with, something that's real, something that's messy. And when you do that, when you're the first person who takes that scary, risky, terrifying step, it does this beautiful thing in our community where it invites others to feel safe to share likewise and to say, me too, and you open the door to what he calls going second. And the alternative, I think, that we have to keep in mind, the alternative to that, which I think we often fall prey to, the alternative to this is just hiding from each other. The alternative, the, there are only really two ways to do this. One is to be vulnerable and to risk that because you know that you've been loved and met with, by Jesus' grace. And the other is just to simply keep hiding and keep pretending and keep a- acting like everything is fine. And the irony of this, though, is people can see it anyways. Like this is the beautiful gift of vulnerability. Is actually probably the thing that you want and need to get vulnerable about. Some of your best friends can already see it. This is why I love this one guy. He says this. He says he calls this this phenomenon uh, that we all have a soul to pay. And here's what he says by this. He says uh, uh, the soul to pay is that thing about ourselves that we are most deeply embarrassed by and like to think we have cunningly concealed from the world, but which is in fact pitifully obvious to everybody who knows us. This is where like if you ever this is a little bit of a side, but did you ever see that, that Trump video where like the gust of wind sh- like kind of exposed his hair? You know what I'm talking about? Man, if you haven't seen that, that thing is incredible. But it's like the craziness of that moment to me was like, man, that thing was horrifying. But then they, like it's so clear, like the way he does it, like it just pretends like that's not a thing. And this to me is like the, our need for vulnerability. It's like you need vulnerability right now because your friends can already see your toupee. They can already see your desperate attempts to hide the thing you're most afraid of talking about. Like, they really can. And that should be not, that shouldn't make you hide further. That should be this, like, if I'm, if I'm poor in spirit, I can laugh at myself, right? Like, if I'm secure in the love of Jesus, I can be like, I am ridiculous. Let me just tell you, the gift of being 37 and being a Christian for, like, 22 years uh, is I can look back at my life. And be like, man, I was ridiculous. I, mean, I could tell you about my bow tie phase, where I was in seminary and I would literally wear a bow tie to class. <laughs> oh, sorry, it's funny. It's me. I would wear a bow tie to class and a blazer, and just I want—I mean, what I was trying to say is, listen, y'all, I take this way more effing seriously than you do. Like, I'm here to study. John Calvin will be owned by me, bow tie. And like, I can look back and be like, man, Jesus's grace to me is stunning because that guy needed to be humbled super hard and was through a long story. Um, But you you have, and and hopefully as a senior, my prayer for you typically, like I love, we're going to do senior share night in a few weeks. Um, What I love about senior share night, the best ones to me are the ways you can look back, especially like freshman you and be like, man, what a ridiculous human being I was. And here's why. And here's how God was faithful to me. And here's how he met me in that story. And here's where he's brought me. Those are the best stories, right? But here's what I fear. And sometimes in our circles, we are so afraid of being the one to kind of do that first. Like if there's not a culture of that, if we're not doing that with each other, who's going to go first? Like who's going to say I'm a mess and yet I'm deeply loved by God and I want to tell you about it. Um, I love, there's a sermon that I love. I love by this guy, Peter Hyatt. And he's actually, he's reflecting on, it's actually a really poignant sermon. He's, he's actually reflecting on his two pastor friends who, have, who killed themselves because they were so afraid of being exposed with their struggles with depression and their struggles with um, just what they were dealing with. And so he had these, this perfect, this crazy hard time where two of his friends killed themselves. And in this really passionate sermon, he's actually preaching on Jesus feeding the 5,000. And he makes this genius point where he says the beauty of that, so we could talk about a a lot of beautiful things about that story. But one of the most beautiful parts of that story is how Jesus takes their nothing and turns it into a feast. Here's what he says about it. He says, when you have nothing to give, give your nothing. Ironically, when we have nothing to give, at last, everything can be done. It's easier to share your something than your nothing, your strength than your weakness, your wealth than your poverty. But Jesus produces an abundance from shared poverty. Shared poverty is like a banquet of grace. What is an AA meaning? It's an abundance of shared poverty. And that's what a real church is too. Jesus took their nothing and made a feast. All that they had was all that Jesus needed. Blessed are the poor in spirit who are giving their nothing because that's all they have. And Jesus is turning it into a banquet of grace and a feast for their friends and for their community. And y'all, that's what I long for EF to be. Like, I long for EF to be a place where we get this. Where we can say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me tell you about the mess that is my heart. But let me equally tell you about the maddening, beautiful love of Jesus to me. And let me invite you and all the risk and fear of that into my story and share that with you and share my nothing. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, would you do this in us individually? Would you do this in us as a community? Uh, Would you give us a greater vision of your grace in our lives? Would you give us um, that gift of the the vulnerability that really is spirit-led, Lord, that really um, you alone can give us the courage um, to do with each other? Lord, would you do that? Would you let that spread like wildfire like wildfire uh, through our group Lord um, and would you work in us uh, this poverty of spirit that is the only way we're ever going to be in touch with the riches of your grace and the riches that we have in you so Lord we pray these things Lord Christ in your name amen we stand our last all